Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talk with Dr. Steffi Cohen. Dr. Steffi is a 25-time world record powerlifter. She is now a professional boxer. Growing up in Venezuela, she became the top female soccer player. Um, if you haven't done so already, give us a five-star rating on your listening platform. If you are on Apple, give us a written review, and that would do a lot for the algorithm and help other people find the show and listen to people like Dr. Steffi Cohen. Show. So she grew up in Venezuela. Um, the environment and the government and the situation in Venezuela was pretty sketchy when she grew up, and soccer brought her to the United States. And quickly after moving to the United States, she decided to pursue powerlifting, where she set all the world records, I mean, 25 of them, and looking for a new challenge just in the past few years, she has decided to take up boxing, and she's absolutely killing it. She's also a doctor of physical therapy. She's an author. Um, She's a co-owner of the Hybrid Performance Method. She has her own facility down in Miami. She splits time between Miami and in L.A. She's in L.A. a lot now with boxing, Um, but she's just really incredible. Um, Whatever she sets her mind to, she goes out there and accomplishes it with all of her energy. And uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed having her on. Um, I cannot wait to continue to watch and see what she does in her career. Her Instagram is in the show notes, so make sure to go follow her and just like check out what she's doing because she's pretty damn um, inspirational to follow. And uh, if you haven't already, you need to try Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. Rebel Rabbit is a seltzer company out of my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, but it is an alcohol-free seltzer. So we're thinking about a healthier way to live, a healthier way to socialize, and the team at Rebel Rabbit, that's exactly what their goal is. Their website is drinkrebelrabbit.com. And you can go to the link in the show notes to get 20% off. So their seltzers are infused with Delta 8 and Delta 9 THC. So if you are out socializing, you can kind of get this similar feel of letting loose a little bit. But you're going to get none of the bad things that come along with drinking alcohol. So you're going to get a great night's sleep. You're going to wake up fresh. You're going to be able to be productive in the days following. You're not going to hang have a hangover. And it's really just a healthier way to drink. And that is their mission. And if you are looking for a healthier path in life, you might as well get yourself a new mattress. And the best mattress company in the game is Engineered Sleep. If you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. Their team is incredible. Their customer service is incredible. Their products are the best. I have three of their mattresses. Their website, again, engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 15% off your order. So again, drinkrebelrabbit.com. Use promo code LIFE20. You'll get 20% off your order. They also have retailers racking up all over the country, so you can find their retailers on their website, and you can just go pick it up today or order it online. Use the promo code. Get 20% off, and it'll get delivered to your door. Make sure to go to engineeredsleep.com. If you are looking for a new mattress or if anybody um, you know is looking for a new mattress, send them to Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE15 to get 15% off your order. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Steffi Cohen. Dr. Steffi Cohen, good morning. First off, how are you doing? Doing good. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm pumped to have you. Did uh, 
What was your morning like this morning? Did you train at all? So I'm I'm working through some jet lag. I've been in a different time zone for the past three weeks. I've been all over the place in LA, then London, then back to Miami, then Utah. So I'm still adjusting to the schedule. So I had a slow start to the week, slow start to the morning. Just went for a walk, grabbed a coffee here in Coconut Grove in Florida where I live. Um, came back, had a therapy appointment, um, and now this podcast. That's it. What uh, What's your coffee spot in Coconut Grove? <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this, but I totally love Star Movies. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one uh, across from the Black Panther coffee right there? Yeah. Yeah, we love that one. Like, you know what? Like, local coffee shops are awesome, but they're always a gamble, whereas whereas Starbucks is just so standardized. I know exactly what I'm getting. I know it's going to taste the same every time. You know, I know what I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. You know, if I want to try, like, a, maybe a different, you know, flavor of foam or whatever. <laughs> I just know what I'm getting. I, uh, I, too, am fighting some jet lag. I got back this morning from Buenos Aires, from Argentina. I was down there on a long wedding. So, um, yeah, if you see me doing anything weird, that's because I'm fighting. I landed this morning in the U.S. at 9 a.m. Got a little bit of rest, and now we're chatting. So I know you mentioned you spending some time in L.A. and in Miami, and that's more of a recent move for you, right? Yep. What what brought you to L.A.? A couple of things. So I'm – I – Coming out of a long relationship, and uh, I so part of it was I felt like I needed a change. I've been in Miami for for twelve years, and coming out of a seven year relationship uh, that was pretty tough to break away from, just kind of felt like I needed a, a bit of a, a change of scenery. That was the first thing, and then the second was opportunity. So about two years ago, I decided to switch careers as an athlete so i i'm transitioning from powerlifting into boxing and the boxing scene here in miami is lacking a little bit there's there's really not a lot of uh, female fighters and not a lot of opportunity and la and vegas are kind of like the spots for combat sports Mm -hmm. so uh last year around around this time last year actually i took my first trip over there to just kind of like get a feel for 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 the city and get a feel for the people and and visit different gyms and try out different coaches and I really fell in love with the place. I feel like LA is a very tra- uh, transitory city in that I feel like a lot of people are there for for a specific reason, like to elevate their their career or to network or start a business or because they're finding themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I really resonate with the whole kind of Cali LA life at this yeah. point in my, in my career at this point in my life it just seems like a a, a place that's going to be really good for not only for for my career but also for my for my soul yeah that makes a lot of sense and when you when i think about boxers training in general i think about la and i think about vegas so totally right? you're very close like a, to that <laughs> like a sauna suit with a with your hood up and like exactly. the hollywood sign in the back yeah. <laughs> That's but literally what I've been up to. <laughs> you say you're transitioning, pe- powerlifting, boxing, but that's not how you started early on in life. You started as a soccer player. What was life like for you as a kid and where did you grow up? So I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, South America. 
Um, I started playing soccer when I was about six or eight years old. My dad was a member of the national team in France for soccer as well. So he was very passionate about sports. Dang, they um, got a good national team. Yeah, yeah, they do. And um, so he was the one that kind of like ignited that fire uh, for sports uh, into me at a, at a very young age. And I sucked at the beginning. I was really, really terrible. And <laughs> But I was just enjoying the game so much, enjoying playing so much, enjoying the experience of like learning something new, of spending time with my dad, of uh, spending time with my friends in the in the in the field in the soccer field that that the thought of being the best soccer player in the world wasn't really something that would cross my mind and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because that that kind of moment in time and that lesson of like enjoying like having fun playing the game and and just enjoying the journey I think is one of the things that has made me so successful in in life mm-hmm you know, not having the not not being a results oriented person and being more a process oriented person has has really allowed me to to not only just enjoy the suck and enjoy being bad, enjoying being a beginner at something, but also um, has kind of given me the power of being able to stick to things for way longer than mm-hmm. anybody else. You know, even when 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 they get shitty. So, yeah, I I was pretty much benched for the first five years of my soccer career, you know, wasn't really nothing special. And I don't really remember the point in time where, where something clicked, but I remember that all of a sudden I started being noticed, started being noticed by my teammates, started being noticed by, by my coach, started being noticed by, by um, talent scouts. And that was really exciting because it was like, I was just doing what I loved doing and and the byproduct was a lot of attention and positive reinforcement that felt mm-hmm. really cool, right? And eventually I I was presented with the opportunity to try out for the national soccer team in, in Venezuela, which felt really good because it was like I was following my dad's footsteps kind of thing. Sure. And I was I was making him proud and I was I was doing the thing that I was being trained to do since I was six years old, right? Uh, at that point in time, I was 13. So mind you, I, I played a sport for seven years in which I sucked. Genuinely. <laughs> like, no other way to put it. I was really not good. Um, but yeah, I made it to the national team. I eventually became team captain of of not only of the national team, but of my high school team and of the guys team as well. And um yeah, that, that felt really good. And, and so sports became a, a very uh, kind of ingrained part of my identity of who I was. And and it wasn't long after that that I just decided that I wanted to make a living off of being an athlete. Very cool. And it seemed so far-fetched and so um, irrational to my family. I come from a, from a very traditional conservative uh, Jewish Hispanic family uh, where everybody is either a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer quite literally uh, and so I was kind of the black sheep of my family even mm-hmm. for, for even for just leaning into sports and leaning into into kind of a more um, masculine identity as well right because yeah. the expectations from my culture or the culture where I grew up in was like well, okay, you're you're approaching your 17, 18 years old. You're supposed to already kind of be in a more or less serious relationship. 
when you go to college, you're supposed to pick a career that is feminine, you know, that allows you to have more freedom of your time that that isn't going to stress you out too much so that you can have time and energy to to make and raise kids. That was the expectation. And, and I was so far from that, mm-hmm. from from any of that, really. Uh, you know, you I just want path. Yeah. Absolutely. I just wanted to be a professional athlete. And so and so I did. I applied for a, um, a scholarship in the U.S. and I got it and I moved with with one massive hockey duffel bag from Venezuela to San Diego, uh, where I where I got into to play Division One soccer. And then I got really scared. I got really scared and I was very intimidated by by the level of of just the level of professionalism and, and athleticism of of girls here in the US. Like it's funny to even for me to even say or, or kind of take pride in saying that I was a member of the national team because it sounds like it was like this big deal. But you know, we, we really we had no funding, no government help. I got paid fifty dollars a month to play professional soccer what in Venezuela. Was this? this was two thousand and seven. Yeah, 2006, 2007, something like that. And we were the first women's women's team in in Venezuela. And obviously, we got no help from the government. We played inside of the military base in a dirt field. Our our goals had no nets. We had just one trainer and one assistant coach that pretty much like just knew how to play soccer, but knew nothing else about the human body. So all we did was play soccer. We would play soccer on the sand. We would play soccer on a hill. We would play soccer on a field, but we didn't have strength and conditioning. We didn't have, um, we didn't have like athletic trainers or anybody who was more prepared to actually develop us as athletes. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I got into school and I moved to San Diego, I I vividly remember like my first training session was a Monday at 5 a.m. in the weight room. And I'm like, fuck is this? These bitches are like squatting two, three plates. Their legs are massive. They're like benching. I'm mm-hmm. like, where am I? What is this? Yeah. And I felt so yeah. intimidated. And I think I lasted maybe a month before I was like, I have just so, I'm so left behind. I'm so far behind. I don't feel like I can, I don't feel like I'll ever be able to catch up. And and that's been one of my biggest regrets in life has been to pre because I, I feel like I prematurely quit, you know, it's just based on the, the, the limitations that I was setting for myself. Sure. Oh, I'll never, be, I'll never be able to perform at that level. I'll never be able to catch up. I'll, I don't have that level of strength or that level of athleticism. And, and that couldn't have been farther from the truth. Like what's interesting is that only a couple of years after I became the strongest woman in the world. <laughs> It, which is ridiculous, right? Like I was so intimidated by these girls who were moving a lot of weight, and I thought that I was never going to be that strong. And a couple of years later, I became the strongest woman in the world. So that was one. Uh, that that was a tough one for me was to to give give that up. But obviously, like anything, it, it's I can't even see it as something that I regret because I wouldn't I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in today had not been because of because I quit soccer and and intentionally. Um, discovered my talent in uh, in other sports sure. right so and after i go ahead. go ahead and uh i think too someone to be grateful for it probably helped you get to the u.s because 
what was what was Venezuela what was Venezuela like then when you came came to the U.S. Because soccer was probably a big big thing that got you here, which is something to be really grateful for. It was the thing that got me here. Absolutely, it absolutely was. I I wouldn't have had a chance to leave the country if it wasn't for 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 my I guess like a visa talent a talent visa. So absolutely, uh, but no the 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 social and economic situation of venezuela back then when i moved was insane like Mm -hmm. we had just we had literally just come out of a civil war maybe like a year before i moved here and that was that moment was a a a kind of deciding moment for my mom where she said like you you just have you have to leave you know you you deserve a better future this country is way too volatile and and um unbalanced for you to be able to stay here and 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 develop and have have an actual career like my friends that stayed there that were optimistic about maybe things potentially getting fixed took them like between six and eight years to graduate college because of all the protests because of all the times that that uh that schools uh ran out of funding or or other just things that were happening in the country that were preventing them from keep going to school right so i know that that was the it was the right move and but yeah it was that civil war that that kind of uh opened my my parents my mom's eyes really into into deciding and pushing me to to leave so that's kind of that's kind of how i left the country when when you were a kid did you realize what was going on like did you have moments where you're like oh my goodness like this happened or this happened and uh really like clicked for you it's crazy because in when when that is all you know, it's so heavily normalized in mm-hmm. in your head. I I really didn't realize how fucked up the the conditions in which I was living were until maybe a year or two after moving to the U.S. When I would casually talk about the things that I've seen and went through to be, to kids here in the U.S. and their reaction would just mm-hmm. be like, yeah, <laughs> like totally shocked. Things like, oh yeah, you know, one time I was sleeping over at my friend's house, and when I when I went when we went outside to grab the the school bus, there was just a dead person outside, and we thought it was so weird, but we just went over him and got into the into the into the bus and went to school. Just like one of those stories that you're like, if in my head it was just like one more day, you know, just yeah. another day living in, in Caracas kind of thing, <laughs> stepping on dead bodies. It's like what the fuck, or like. I don't know. Every week, another friend of mine would get uh, kidnapped. We had this thing called Kidnap Express. That it was this kind of like a we had our own cartel, like our own version of a cartel. It's a very kind of uh, specialized group of people that would study a whole entire kind of uh, society. So for me, I was part of the the community. I was part of the, the Jewish community. And so these groups would study not only you, but your friends, your family, your schedule, your bank accounts, everything. And so it wasn't uncommon for, for example, yeah, for, for friends of yours or, or people you knew to consistently get kidnapped. That's absurd. And just in terms of, it's crazy, right? And, and just in terms of like how my, how my day-to-day life was, like I, there's no such thing as walking on the street, for example. You're either inside of a building that is pretty much a fort that has multiple security guys that has barbed wires outside that has cameras that has armed guards 
you're either inside of that or you're traveling in an inconspic- inconspicuous car towards somebody else's house or towards just your school or an- another area that's guarded. And that's it. Like there's, we went to maybe one club and a couple of restaurants that were heavily guarded as well. And that's it. Like that was my life. You know, I, you didn't really venture out. You didn't meet people, didn't really meet people outside of your circle. So it was so dangerous. How was life? Uh, is your family still there? My dad is the only one that's left there now. Um, my parents are separated. My mom lives in Chicago. And then my cousins and my brothers and the rest of my family is is literally spread all over the world, which has been really difficult because just as um the way that I was brought up, at least for 18 years when I lived back home, was is it's with that kind of Hispanic sense of family and sense of community. You know, I, I lived a few yeah. blocks away from my grandparents, a few blocks away from my uncles, a few blocks away from my brothers who got married and, you know, started having kids. So it's like, I came from a much more uh, cohesive yeah, definitely. Yes, background where where that was the norm. Whereas like here in the States, it's much more common for people to chase opportunity and and move out of their house when they're 18 and chase their own dreams and their own lives. Like this, that is all very foreign to me still. Mm-hmm. Even after 12 years of, of being here, it feels very um, lonely and secluded and 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 foreign to me to be so far away from my family. Sure, and that's something I've uh, recognized and noticed with like my Latin friends or Hispanic friends. They have a very close knit family, and they like take care of their grandparents. They take care of their parents. Their parents will move in with them. Um, that's something I've like even told my wife about. Is just like that's what you see in in the Hispanic community. So you you're playing soccer, and all of a sudden you decide to transition. How do you discover powerlifting? So from so I stopped playing soccer and I, I genuinely I genuinely thought that I was ready to to just focus on my career. I was in business school at the time. I was committed to my education. I I um I was struggling a lot with just language barrier. I was fluent in English, but not not fully at the level of like a college level. Mm-hmm. I was really struggling with like just reading comprehension, the way that tests were 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 organized, the way that questions were worded with the scantron, the multiple choice exams. We didn't even have that where I come from, literally. Like it was all short answer where I come from. We didn't have the technology for a scantron. <laughs> so just imagine that. It's just another layer layer of like complexity and 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 culture that I have to I hate that shit and I you know what I discovered that I was like mildly dyslexic because Mm -hmm. I consistently would choose the wrong letter on the scantron but the right letter on my paper and for the first year I didn't know what was happening I was failing all my exams my GPA was like a 1.8 I'm like dude but I'm studying so much I spend more time than anybody else studying and I'm failing these exams what is happening (laughs) and then I realized that I kept bubbling the wrong letters (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so i had i was committed to to kind of um assimilate into the american culture and and just figure out my place in society just going from being so well known in venezuela you know i was in newspapers i was i was the the best soccer player in the country and i came here and then i was nobody like I didn't just play soccer in the national team. I was the best soccer player in in the country, and I came here and was nobody. 
So I just felt like I had to kind of climb my way up again and, and figure out my place in society and improve myself again to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy that I that I that I let that go. I was so unhappy that I I didn't that I couldn't identify with being an athlete anymore. And I've just felt such a deep sense of void that I really needed to to fill and 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 get back to like the root of what makes me feel alive and what makes what makes life meaningful for me, which is playing. It's play it's playing sports. Like that's where I feel when I feel the best. And so I entered kind of a discovery phase where I was just trying a bunch of different things out. I tried running half marathons. I I bought a bike and tried triathlons. I took a couple of kickboxing classes. I bought a skateboard for a time period. Like <laughs> I was trying different things to, to see. In my head, I, I kind of had this this process in my head for like how I could find something that I could be the best at and that I could monetize. And I came up with this like, it's, it's like a, a three kind of bars in my head. You're my skills, my talents, and my passion. And I'm constantly just trying to like balance the three of them out, right? So I have my talent is my, I see it as my innate gift. Like what am I naturally really good at? What are the things that I'm naturally good at? I'm I'm fast or I have a lot of endurance or, or I have the, or I can produce a lot of power or I can, I have really good hand, hand-eye coordination, whatever that is. Like that's a, that's a talent that you're born with. Your skill are things that maybe you're not good at now, but you know you can get better at or you've proven that you can mm-hmm. get better at faster than anybody else. For me, that was strength. I literally, I picked up a bar and then the next week it had 50, 50 pounds more. <laughs> I just had a natural, a natural inclination to develop that skill. And then passion is just something that you are drawn to, something that you that you genuinely enjoy or that you can learn to enjoy. So those were my three buckets. And in trying a bunch of shit out and in trying to figure out which one of these things brought the most balance to these three bars in my head, um, I was deemed a quitter. It, this was a really weird time period of my life because because I know I'm not a quitter. I, I knew what I was doing. I just didn't have a... I just didn't. I just didn't know, really know that it was so calculated mm-hmm. at the time. What it looked like to other people and even to myself was like, okay, I just dumped three thousand dollars that I didn't have on a bike to try to run to try Bikes to do triathlon. So expensive <laughs> to try to do a triathlon. Then trained for maybe six months and decided I didn't want to do it, so I'm a quitter. Then I went into, I bought a skateboard because I wanted to go to the X Games, of course, and um, fell a few times and decided it wasn't for me. And so never so hard, so hard. My God, I feel like if you don't, if you don't start skateboard skateboarding when you're a kid and you lose that, first of all, learn how to properly fall without fear when you're a kid that you mm-hmm. don't give a shit about breaking a bone. If you don't have that background in you, I, I think it's almost impossible to to overcome that fear of falling. You know what I mean? Like I hate I'll it. Never- I don't like, uh, like, I just don't, f- I feel like my feet aren't connected to the ground. So it's hard for me to like wrap my head around that. Like I need my feet on the ground. My feet are on the ground. I'm good to go. But having that board in between my feet and the ground just throws me completely off. Same. So yeah, that was very short lived. Um, 
and yeah, I was just, uh, I was, I was deemed a quitter. You know, I start things and I don't finish them. I start things and I leave them halfway through. But eventually through that discovery process, I uh, decided to try CrossFit because it was the hot thing to do. Yes. And uh, that was kind of my gateway, gateway drug into lifting weights. I started doing CrossFit and I realized that my biggest weakness was strength and that I needed to get stronger. And so I kind of naturally gravitated towards spending more time doing barbell movements, spending more time doing snatch, clean and jerk, squat, bench, deadlift than anything else in part because I needed it. But most importantly, because it was the it was it was what I enjoyed the most doing. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like found a passion there, right? Without even without even noticing. And I not only found a passion, but I also found my talent. Do you know what you like so much about it? Um, I think I really liked how it made me feel. Mm -hmm. I was insecure about how I looked and who I was at that time in my life. I just felt like a massive failure, you know, just moving here, failing my classes, like not doing well in school, not making a lot of friends, like really struggling with, 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 with the culture and with my social status as well. And even financially as well, I was just in a really weird place in my life. And and uh, lifting weights made me feel really empowered and, and confident um, and at least gave me some level of like stability and objective metrics as well. Like you, oh, yeah, you, true. you know what you're, how, you, how to progress. You just keep adding more weights to the bar and it's so um, uh, easy to calculate, yeah, I guess. Definitely. And, you can see your progress. You can gain your confidence. Exactly. Um, but I think like, yeah, the, the, the main thing that that gave me was just that empowerment and confidence as, as a woman, really. And uh, and at that point in time as well was like being a disruptor of an entire industry. You know, I started lifting heavy at a time where women were like, it was not common for girls to be in the weight room. Mm -hmm. And that felt really good. That felt really good. You were one well. of the first then because it's kind of, I feel like it's gotten a little bit more popular for it's gotten a lot more popular. Yeah a lot more popular thanks to social media and thanks to and just thanks to women being absolute badasses yeah definitely not being scared to, to challenge the status quo you know was this uh was this around the time of your eating disorder yeah yep so i'm coming from yeah coming from venezuela moving into the states obviously like our 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 foods are very different, like what we're used to eating and also portion sizes and also where our food comes from. Mm -hmm. So moving here and completely changing my eating style made me gain weight, gained like the, the typical freshman 15. And that was a mind fuck even in and of, its, in and of itself. Like I had lost my, my identity as an athlete. So I'm not playing sports competitively anymore. And I gained 15 pounds. Like who the fuck am I anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. And I had really no understanding, no deep understanding about fitness or training, even though I had been in it my whole life. I, I always kind of trusted my trainers and people around me for this information. And I, I generally didn't, didn't have any, I was in business school. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on being a fitness expert. And like anybody who decides to start their fitness journey, it is so confusing because the amount of information is endless True. and it's all very conflicting and it's all very unfiltered. You know, what one person says is good. The other, someone else says is bad. I had no formal training in, in 
reading and appraising research and literature. So I was just reading like cheap blogs like T Nation and, <laughs> and, and and I don't know YouTube and 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 health.com and cosmopolitan and all of these other like bullshit yeah. blogs from people who are not qualified to be yeah, writing not about super reliable sources no just like the internet and, like we said earlier yeah exactly so i was very just very very confused and that led me to develop an eating disorder because it was like i would try a bunch of different diets diets out and nothing would work because mm -hmm. i i was failing to grasp the most basic concept of dieting which is energy balance i didn't understand how to calculate how many calories i was eating i didn't understand um that i didn't understand the fact that i was constantly um that i was constantly um calculating that i was burning way more calories than i was actually burning and that i was that i was under reporting how many calories i was consuming so i was in this like weird in between spot of trying really committing to diets and to my training i was doing like an hour of stairmaster a day i was running like 50 miles a week you know i was doing everything and seeing no progress and that was so frustrating eventually i developed um a binge eating disorder that was so crippling like i became completely addicted to to food like thinking about food because i was so fucking hungry mm -hmm. and also and also develop a really unhealthy relationship with exercise because I would just see exercise as a way to burn calories. Yeah. And in my head, I wanted to be at zero every day. I wanted to burn an equal amount of calories than I was consuming, which is so unhealthy. So unhealthy. And that How'd lasted you get a through it? that lasted a few a few years. I wouldn't say like maybe two or three years of of really being crippled and riddled with this super unhealthy obsession with food exercise and the way that my body looked and it was through lifting weights and then i hired actually you know who lane norton is mm -hmm. at the also at the beginning of his career it was, it's, wow. it's a very special relationship for me because he wasn't well known at all back then and neither was i but that's how we connected Dang. and and he was my coach for about for almost a year he taught me everything and and completely changed uh, the way that I saw exercise, the way that I saw food, the way that I saw myself even. And that was, uh, that was super, that was very transformative for me. That's kind of how I was able to, to get through it was just through developing a very in-depth understanding about diet and about my body. And when I was able to, to start seeing results and, and really understand the basic principles about, of dieting, that's when I was able to overcome the eating disorder because you know what like people develop an eating disorder and an unhealthy relationship with their bodies and with food when they fail to achieve the standard that they're after that's how you develop that and then we're we're almost shamed for having that standard from this whole like body positivity industry mm -hmm. like, well i'm just i'm just i'm just uh supposed to be complacent uh just love your body how it looks i'm supposed to not have any ambition for the way that my body looks and the way my body performs, fuck that shit. Like I'm not gonna be made feel bad for having ambition for like what I want my body to look and do, right? The 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 trauma and the unhealthy relationship comes from failing at it and from not having a good understanding. So once I had that and once my body started changing, I felt so deeply empowered. Yeah. Uh, 
because I was able to make my body change in exactly the ways I wanted it to and, and feel no shame for it either, right? Obviously, with that comes also uh, uh, the need for acceptance of the things that you can't change about the way you look or the way that you perform. And mm-hmm. that that's another conversation. But that isn't to say that you can't make improvements, right? And that you and that isn't to say that uh, you should be made feel guilty for celebrating those achievements as well and for striving, striving to be better and striving to do more and striving to look better. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a key thing for I know for me when I was like through times of, of struggle in my life is education, like understanding what's going on. And then it's easier for, I think, people to to come to terms with what they're what they're trying to work towards or go through is just understanding the process. My God, it's it's the most important thing because what people are what people fail to to recognize is that they're looking for a magic pill. They're mm-hmm. looking for for the for some sort of like oh my God, I don't know, like a, a person, a guru, a hero to like save them. When in reality, it's like it all starts from developing a deep understanding of fundamental principles. Mm-hmm. If you have that, you have the power within you to make any change or to, to make, to, to redirect your life in whichever way that you want. It Not only in training and nutrition, but also in, like I discovered that also with my mental health. I've been struggling with anxiety, panic disorder since I was six years old. And the moment I was able to get a really good grasp on it was after spending a considerable amount of time researching and understanding the, the neurophysiology mm-hmm. of anxiety and panic attacks. Why do they happen? What is actually happening in my brain? What are the main neurochemicals that are involved in this process? You know, instead of just like hoping that somebody's going to come save you, instead of like relying so deeply on your therapist or on mm-hmm. your significant other or on your parents like rely on the the information rely on on yourself with with actual data that is factual and that is proven to really understand what is happening to you and then take it from there the team and the people at engineered sleep are offering you 15 percent off if you use promo code live 15 to get a new mattress and I cannot tell you enough how much trust I have in the team at Engineered Sleep and the product they will provide to you if you have any questions about your current mattress. If you're getting bad sleep and you think it might be your mattress, it's time to upgrade your mattress and the team at Engineered Sleep is here to do that for you. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 10% off your order, but most importantly, you're going to be working with an amazing company. You're going to have an amazing product and you're going to start sleeping better at night and you'll start performing better on a daily basis so go to engineeredsleep.com use promo code live 15 get 15 percent off your order and start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis have you seen i know you mentioned you went to therapy this morning has that something is that something you've done for a long time my whole life yeah when did you start going to therapy i think the first time i so this is really interesting I don't think I've, I've talked about this much in podcasts, but my dad was a Scientologist and <laughs> and he really didn't believe he didn't really believe in therapy or in counseling or in any of that. So there was a there was a big push and pull at my house because my my mom is is Western medicine, uh, Western medicine believer. And my whole 
mom's side of the family is, like I said, physicians, doctors, lawyers, like people who believe in in real science. <laughs> and then my dad's side of the family is like more kind of like on the quacky side. And there was a big push and pull for like, does she need medication? No, hell no. If she, if she takes medication, she's a crazy person, right? Like God forbid she goes to a psychiatrist and gets prescribed a, uh, an, an anti-anxiety medication yeah. or an antipsychotic. Like God forbid, you know, she's going to be crazy, whatever. But eventually I think I was, um, I think I was, 12 or 13 the first time i went to counseling it was a therapist it wasn't even a psychologist it was just like uh like a teenage counselor and it was so incredibly helpful and since then i've just always made sure to have a really good therapist wow. a really good therapist and a really good lawyer <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness what uh what was your do you remember your first powerlifting competition of course what was it um, it was a really small meet in Northern Florida. So I drove from Miami to, yeah, it was called Defuniac Springs. It was called, it was a nine hour drive. I drove there, almost missed weight. It was a, it was a mess. I came in like maybe 10 minutes before Wayne's closed. And I, I just had no expectations for, for what kind of numbers I was going to put up. I was obviously like not known at all. I was at that point, I was competing actively in Olympic weightlifting. This was this was just kind of something that I was going to do for fun because because I could, because why not? I was trying to start a business with hybrid at mm -hmm. that time. So the whole concept of hybrid was to combine Olympic lifting with powerlifting and functional bodybuilding. So I was like, I might as well walk the walk, not only talk the talk, right? And I just went and, and like I said, no expectations. And I ended up doing really well. I think that first competition, I deadlifted 375 pounds. Dang. which was almost unheard of for a woman at that time it was really cool um i had like a big squat pr as well i think i squatted like 30 more pounds than i had ever done i hit a bench pr as well and obviously hit a deadlift pr and and that was so cool i felt so um i felt so welcomed by the powerlifting community and 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 it was just such a cool and positive experience that just left me wanting wanting to participate more and wanting to keep keep doing that a little bit more yeah fast forward yeah. to the day i think you have like 25 world records and in, in powerlifting yeah. for females <laughs> what uh what are some of those best memories or moments through those years of racking up these world records i think the the best part about it all was the just overcoming massive obstacles and 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 just continue training in in the face of like just the worst adversity that I could think of. Like I got kicked out of school. I lost friends, you know, people who died in my life. I had heart, heartbreak. I lost uh, friends and just kind of had to continuously, continuously prove myself in this sport independently of all the shit that was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was those brief moments of, of, uh, accomplishment after really big losses that that were so special to me if that makes sense like even whether Definitely. it was like a massive injury that was preventing me from like training at the, at the at the highest level that i was able to overcome or 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 panic attack or anxiety or or failures in school that i was able to continue continue pushing forward 
was those moments of like those brief moments of like being able to breathe after after just the most insane shit storms that were that were so powerful to me yes it was something you could rely on it was something you could lean on is there it's a proof of character most importantly and it gives you your confidence too which confidence is so huge massive i i proved to myself that i am the kind of person that doesn't stop for anything you know i through that journey in powerlifting i i I built myself to become a specific type of person, mm-hmm. right? I proved it time after time. You know, I proved that I could succeed in the face of adversity. I proved that no matter how horrible my life situation is, I proved that I can still keep showing up and 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 doing doing my my job and doing and doing work. What were and, the doubters like for you? Um well, you know what? Like the the toughest part, or the 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 most um um kind of backlash that I was getting was for being a woman and lifting and getting attention. So there was a lot of ba- there was a lot of talk around the amount of attention that I was getting from people that were saying that it was undeserved. You know, people being like, oh, okay, I, I didn't get what the big deal about this girl is. She's she's strong, but she's just strong for a girl. And that irked me so bad. That bothered me so bad to the point where I wanted to get so strong mm-hmm. and be so impossible to ignore so that these people would have just nothing to say. Like, I wanted to be just strong, period. I didn't want it to be strong for a girl. That was kind of like my main driving my main driving force yeah pushed you even to get any better to get even better is there one record you hold closest to the heart yeah um i it it wasn't even it wasn't a record because it was uh it was in the animal cage but the animal cage in 2018 and the animal cage 2019 were probably the two most special moments that i have from my powerlifting career and it's unrelated to the records i like i said i've never been a results oriented person actually like after every powerlifting meet that i did i would throw my my medals in the garbage and i have them all here because my ex picked them up and left them in a in a box and when i retired he gave them all to me and Dang. he was like you threw these all out you know but this is your life's like success like mm-hmm. you you dedicated your life for 10 years to this sport and this you know, these are your memories. You should keep them. And I get it now. Now I'm glad that he kept them. But but those records really didn't, really don't mean anything to me. Even now, the medals don't really mean anything to me now. Um, but these two instances in the animal cage are the ones that are, are the most special to me. Because, so for the, the deadlift that I did in 2018 was, this is my heaviest deadlift of all time. It was a 550 deadlift in the animal cage in 2018. And the reason why I was so special was because I was so terrified to perform in front of so many people. So this is not just the powerlifting crew. This is like the entire fitness industry crew. Like if you watch, if you ever watch that video, there's like, I don't know, maybe 500 people around the cage Mm -hmm. right then and there. And, um, I just really wanted to put up a good show. Right. And, and I was really struggling with, with my back. That was kind of my limiting factor through my through through my powerlifting career. It was always my back. There was always a chance that it might not hold up. And um, yeah, I, I think that day I hit like a fifty pound deadlift PR. 
I I've always pride myself for being uh for being the type of athlete that can that can perform under pressure. Mm-hmm. And so being put in those situations of pressure and being actually able to perform way beyond my expectations is the most special thing yeah. for me. Um so that was one and then the next year even so like I was supposed to deadlift again at the cage. So I had pressure on me because the previous year was so good and people were expecting me to deadlift again and to deadlift 50 pounds more than I had already done, right? The pressure was on and maybe not from people, but from myself. And six months before the cage, I, I hurt my back pretty bad and I, was, I wasn't able to deadlift at all. And I think like a month before the cage, I was like, you know what, guys, like, I'm just going to squat. Like, can you guys announce that I'm going to squat? Because I, I tried really hard to get back into deadlifts, but I couldn't. My back's really messed up. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to squat. And I was so demoralized by it because I was like, no one gives a shit about my squat. It's not even that good. You know, so who's going to even come watch my squat? And I don't know what happened. Like two or three weeks before the cage, I just kicked things off into a new gear. I started hitting like all sorts of squat PRs. Like I went from from doing from uh, 180 kilos, so that's what like 405. Yeah, 405 for one. That was my best squat. To 405 for five. Dang. Just out of pure need. I'm like, I just need to do this. I need to dig the deepest that I ever have to just make this shit happen. Like this is my life. This is my reputation. You know, what kind of person am I gonna be? The person that shows up and puts up like a mediocre show or the person that comes up and like shows something <laughs> completely unexpected, you know? And I don't know where the fuck I pulled that off, but I ended up squatting 500 pounds. Wow. So that was a hundred pound PR. And it just came out of absolute nowhere. What was, uh, what was the reaction like um, around the cage when that happened? Oh my God. Have you not seen that video? I've seen it. It's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> Like everybody's yelling, like tugging on the cage, throwing t-shirts in. Like my buddies are like slapping me all over. I'm like crying. It was just the most surreal experience of my life. What um, what type of like diet did you put in when you would be training for a competition like this? My, honestly, my my I've I've been dieting quote unquote for so long that um, I'm just just very consistent with the types of food that I eat. So for the most part, I'm always just eating like uh, rice and vegetables, like root vegetables for my carbs and rice, um, lean lean meats, beef, chicken, turkey, and just as much, as many nutrient dense foods as I can, as, as I can possibly mm-hmm. What are eat. some of your favorites? Um, nuts and all sorts of fruits and vegetables. Berries are my favorite. Um, yeah, for the most part, honestly, it's it's a pretty kind of clean and simple diet. Mm-hmm. That isn't to say that I don't also enjoy like a tasty treat from you know here and there. But honestly, because I've been eating quote unquote clean for so long, anytime I veer away from that, I feel like absolute garbage. Yeah. So I know the feeling. Do you count so, um, your macros and calories? I don't have I don't have to do it anymore. I literally can you I know. can look at a plate. I can look at a plate and know exactly how, not exactly, but have a pretty good idea and estimation of, of how much, how many calories I'm putting in. And I can so easily adjust as well. So say that, say that uh, we go to breakfast right now at a spot here and I have something that I don't usually have, maybe like an X Benedict, right? I know that that had more fat than I usually had for, for breakfast. So I, 
So I subconsciously adjust my lunch to something with less fat and so on. I'm just able to like make those adjustments on the go. Um, And even if it's not meal by meal, it's definitely like day by day. If, If I know that one full day or a few days, I had more calories than I usually have. Mm-hmm. I automatically adjust the following days to have a lot less calories than I usually have. Got it. What has been the biggest challenge transitioning from powerlifting to boxing? Oh, everything. <laughs> it's been such a mind fuck. It's I know crazy. you have the good feet though. <laughs> yeah, it's thanks to soccer. I have I had I have good footwork. Um, but the biggest challenge has been um kind of being patient being patient has been the biggest challenge because i know like the reason why i got into boxing is because i know i have i have the ability to gain the skills that i need to be one of the best boxers in the world Mm -hmm. i know it that's why i'm doing it right uh but it's like i need to to constantly remind myself to to have to give myself grace compassion and patience and take myself back to when i was eight years old and i was doing it for the love of the game you know, that's the, that's the biggest challenge. I need to, I need to go into the gym every day and just enjoy it and just play, you know, um, that's the biggest challenge. But outside of that, outside of the mental, the mental aspect and just the, the, the understanding that I need to give myself time to develop, Mm -hmm. even though there is such a massive expectation for how I should be performing, right? Because people are used to seeing me, to watching me compete at the highest level, right? But in reality, I've been boxing for less than two years. Yet I fought on the biggest on the biggest promotion on the biggest card of boxing on the zone with Golden Boy. So it's like people are looking at me and they're like, oh, but you suck. And I'm like, no shit, dude. I've been boxing for a year and a half. You know, just <laughs> give me a break. I, oh, you look too stiff. No shit. Mm-hmm. I trained to be as stiff as possible for 10 years yeah. to move in one dimension for one specific movement every single day. I know. Right. So that's that's the first thing. And then obviously conditioning has been really, really difficult for me for 10 years. I pretty much avoided all sorts of cardio. I avoided stairs. I got I've gotten so deconditioned and my my cardiovascular health got so bad the first time the first time. So during lockdown, which is the first when I first bought my my heavy bag, um, I went out for a run. I dusted out my running shoes and I went out for a run. I was like, I'm just going to do one mile. I stopped at like 400 meters. My legs were so pumped. My lungs felt like they were burning. Dang. You know, I had I had no will to run, no will to continue. I'm like, what's the fucking point of this shit? I hate it. <laughs> and so conditioning conditioning has been a massive challenge. And, and then movement fluidity mm-hmm. has been the other one. So... It, it really it's the 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 challenge of of changing my physiology and my biology from being really good at producing force for one repetition and now having to shift to the opposite end of the spectrum to be able to move really fast to yeah. do a lot of reps to be fluid to be more dynamic to uh, to produce rotational force. So I'm having to figure out a way to to translate all of that 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 ability to produce force for one rep in in this one movement in the sagittal plane to now try to transfer that over as much as possible to the rotational this the rotational plane frontal plane rotational plane and and move from power to speed. 
What um what would you say your biggest strength is for boxing? Um my mindset. I'm a dog. You know, I've been through it. I've been through it. Nobody works harder than me. Nobody. Nobody's able to do boring shit for longer than me. I did Olympic weightlifting for 10 years. It's the most boring sport in the world. You're constantly in powerlifting. You're constantly banging your head against the wall, no, not making any progress and not knowing if you're moving in the in the right direction even. Mm-hmm. I spent 18 months without seeing any sort of progress in any of my lifts, and I would still show up every day with a smile on my face. So I think that's my biggest strength is just my ability to do boring shit for, for longer than anybody and not be discouraged ever. You know, I think uh, I think if you look at the most accomplished athletes in the world, their p- most powerful thing is probably their mind. Thousand percent. Yeah. If you don't have that, you have nothing. It doesn't matter. Okay, you're you're fast. All right, I can be fast. Maybe not as fast as you, but I can do that. But you can't teach grit. You can't teach. You can't teach grit. You can probably teach mental strength. You can. You can definitely do certain things to to get mentally stronger but a lot of people don't want to do that work because mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable what um what what have you learned about the fight game like the frustrations of figuring out your next fight or or scheduling people to fight like what has that been like um man i mean boxing politics are are really annoying and complex and frustrating um i'm in a very unique position because i I entered the sport at a point in my life where I can pretty much self-fund everything. I can self-fund my entire camp. I don't rely on anybody. I don't rely on a manager. I don't rely on a promotion. I don't rely on anybody. Uh, so I can I can pay my way through this sport in terms of like paying for my camp, paying for all of my expenses, paying for my trainer, uh, paying for an opponent. If the fight gets canceled, it doesn't really affect me in any way. Like I'm not. I don't need the money for for the fight, from the fight to keep going, um, but I think that is the main limiting factor for a lot of talented boxers is mm-hmm. the politics, yeah. is the fact that there's no no not a there's no one single governing body kind of how it exists in MMA where like it's just UFC right, um, there's no no one governing body then there's no. Uh, there's no real kind of professionalism standard that fighters are are held to. So for example, for me, I had a fight scheduled for November of last year and my opponent literally didn't show up. Yeah, I like saw she, that. she missed her flight. She she purposefully missed her flight and she disappeared off the face of the world, of the earth for a whole week. You know, and then she came back and she was like, "Oh, I wasn't going to make weight and didn't know how to tell you." I'm like, Bitch, you just say I'm not going to make weight. What? So, yeah, there's no professionalism standard there. And there's no there's no consequences for people not upholding for athletes, not upholding the part their part of the deal. And that's a massive issue because it's it just sabotages with our careers so much. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that set me back six months. I could have had I could have had two fights in those six months, but I had two opponents that fell through yeah. her. And then, and then my next opponent that somehow lost like six pounds overnight she she showed up my our contractual weight clause for that fight was 118 pounds she showed up at 114 and then the day of the fight she showed up at 108 dang and i weighed 128 so now we were 20 pounds discrepancy 
and the commission didn't allow this fight to go through. Anybody with two brain cells knows that somebody who weighs 114 pounds doesn't just lose six pounds overnight unintentionally. Yeah. So obviously that was another kind of, you know, sabotage from 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 the other athletes part that is so it's unforeseen and it's impossible to really control one of my uh my stable mates my my teammates from uh la he's had 11 fights fall through damn and he and he does really rely on those fights Mm -hmm. to eat yeah you know he needs those fights to like pay his bills and 11 of them fell through so he had to like go back and live with his parents and it's like has been super stuck because of that is there anything the fighter can do to like can make better confirm the fight or like make sure it happens no you can potentially you can have like a a, a second opponent on standby mm-hmm. that's one thing you can do or you can or you can you can pay the opponent up front more money to make them commit but even then, like, you don't know. Yeah. And, what... and I think the other part is, like, just to be more careful with the opponents that you choose. Like, mm-hmm. choose opponents who are known for actually showing up. Yeah. What, uh, do you have your next fight scheduled? Yeah, it's June 8th. Dang, are you excited? Who are you fighting? Oh my God, I'm so stoked. Uh, so this is going to be my first fight at 115 pounds. So I, my first fight was at 126. And then I did 122 and then 118 and now I'm going 115 and I'm planning on ending at 112. Mm-hmm. So it'll be my first fight at 115. Um, I have a few opponents uh, on deck that I'm that I'm negotiating with now. Nobody like noteworthy. Uh, I I decided that, you know, I don't have an amateur experience. So it's it's not really common for people to just go straight into pros. Usually you have your amateur your amateur career that that isn't put under any sort of scrutiny you know, like people lose on and the amateurs all the time. And it's mm-hmm. not something that's defining, right. Um, which allows you to really develop your skills and, 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 and your confidence and, and practice and feel more comfortable under, under the lights and in the ring and in front of people. I didn't have that. And because of the way I am, all of my opponents so far have been absolute badasses. <laughs> like, the girl that I fought, the girl that I fought for my second fight, Marcela Nieto, she was part of the Olympic, uh, the, she was an Olympic alternate for Colombia, and she is now six and zero with five knockouts. It was a draw against me, so she's six six zero and one against me. Um, but yeah, like that, that's the level of opponents that I've had so far. It's been girls with a ton of experience. Like girls have been in combat sports for their entire lives mm-hmm. and um, I realized that I'm at a point where I again I should treat myself with a little bit more compassion and grace and like allow myself to develop as an athlete too yeah. so my next few fights are, are going to be against people of similar experience level to me <laughs> have you noticed um like you getting more speed and quickness as you drop in weight yeah crazy not not only getting rid of of some ma- muscle mass has been helpful to for me to develop more speed, but just also practice right because speed is a skill, mm-hmm. and and it's just continuous exposure and and uh, mindfully developing that speed and that conscious uh, fast movement. Mm-hmm. What makes you faster? Like how do you train speed? You move faster, mm-hmm. like the fast for- twitch muscles and stuff. Yeah, but that's just practice. Um, so it's hard to tell 
where the speed is coming from if it's like from losing muscle mass or just from practicing more the movement but i'm gonna say it's probably a combination of the two where do you see your boxing career in the next say five years um definitely gonna be taking world titles it's again it's not the end goal it never has been it's uh that's a byproduct of being a really good boxer so in my head i'm just striving to be a really good boxer and more than just a really good boxer really exciting boxer to watch Mm -hmm. like i want to have a a a unique style i want to just bring more 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 excitement and and you know for for spectators and do shit that hasn't been done before which i am right i picked up boxing at 29 you know, against all odds, you know, nobody thought that I would ever be moving slightly how I'm moving now. And it's only been like a year and a half. Yeah. So I just, I have no doubt that in five years I'll be able to develop into a really exciting and and interesting fighter. Yeah. I can't wait. What, um, what do you do to balance your social media? Cause you do have a big social media following. Um, you know, you do great on there. I didn't know if that's something you, you know, consistently think of for your mental health and just for yourself. Yeah, it's honestly, it's my full time job. Like I, I see social media. It's my, it's my as a marketing tool. It is my biggest marketing tool, not only for my personal brand that opens the door for potential sponsors and and collaborations, uh, but also for future projects that I develop. So right now I'm, I'm in the process of uh, of coming up with three really cool projects. One is called Combat Box. It's a subscription-based box for combat sport uh, gear. And I'm just finished writing a book, a textbook for to train other personal strain to train other personal trainers. Very cool. Uh, to become uh, strength specialists. And what's the third one that I'm doing? Oh yeah, and then I'm I'm start I'm gonna start selling my own training plans again because nice. I'm partnering with, with my partner. But yeah, so social media is the main form of of marketing, and it's so incredibly powerful. It is something that I think about from the moment I open my eyes until the moment I close them, and it doesn't really do anything negative for my mental health. I just it's just part of what I have to do on a daily basis. I'm really not attached to. I don't get discouraged or encouraged by anything that anybody says on social media about me. Uh, so I don't really care. It's not stressful to me at all. It's just kind of my job. Yeah, definitely. I think that's uh, probably the best way to look at it. Is there uh how are your dogs? Good. I mean, I have, so after I separated my Frenchie is now with my ex and, but I kept my big dog Dexter and he's an absolute angel. He comes with me everywhere. Nice. And we did, uh, we kind of didn't even talk about this, but you did get your degree in in personal training, right? In physical therapy. Physical therapy, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. I went to school at the University of Miami. I got my degree in 2018. And honestly, after, so the way I got there even was, again, another story about quitting and being deemed a, deemed a quitter. I told you I started school and I started as a business school major. Mm-hmm. I started in marketing. And then through like uh, my identity crisis with like getting, leaving soccer and trying to find other sports that I could potentially get better at that paired with like my eating disorder and, and just that unhealthy relationship I had with my body and, and with myself, I guess, and food. 
I switched majors a bunch of times. I switched to nursing school. I started doing pre-med. I even considered architecture. I did like a couple of months of architecture. Ooh. And then eventually I landed in, in uh, exercise physiology. And what happened there was that I was even more confused. I was, I was studying to become a, a professional at understanding the human body and movement and motion but I was so much more confused mm -hmm. and I couldn't imagine if I was confused and I was in a really good program and I was getting trained by really good professors and getting supposedly the best education and I was confused. I couldn't imagine what was happening to like the general public. Right. And so when I graduated, I was like, fuck, I still feel like I'm not qualified to give expert advice on, on health and fitness, even though I just got a degree from a really good school. So I feel like I need, I need a little bit more, uh, academic formation and that's why i decided to get a, a degree in physical therapy i was like okay if i get a doctorate degree then that means i'll have the highest level of understanding of the yeah. human body and then same thing i i was in the middle of school and i'm like oh my god i'm more confused than i was before <laughs> i can't imagine how people are that are not in pt school that don't have this level of, of foundational education um and I realized that part of the problem was the educational system. And that mm -hmm. was a massive turnoff from from school. So it, I think like after my first year in PT school, I had already made the decision that I didn't want to practice. So I never ended up taking my my licensure exam. And and, and I had a pretty kind of jaded view of of, of PT school and and just the educational system and yeah. in traditional education in general. Um, and that's when I started writing this textbook that I'm about to release as well. Very cool. What um what is the message you would leave people that are going through something tough or trying to accomplish something in their life? I mean, at least what I always tell myself when I'm going through rough times is that nothing lasts forever. And I think that the biggest mistake that people make when they're going through it, through a really, really rough patch, is that they actively try to get out of it or to numb themselves to not feel what they're supposed to feel because it's very uncomfortable. And I've made that mistake in the past and it is so frustrating, right? Because mm -hmm. you're like, if you feel sad or depressed or anxious or frustrated or, or angry or whatever other emotion you might be feeling, your natural reaction is to shy away from that and want to get out of it. So you do things like, I don't know, like force yourself to go out with your friends, force yourself to like put a smile on your face, mm -hmm. numb yourself with alcohol and marijuana or like other other substances. When in reality, it's like all you need to do is like just stay there, like yeah, embrace, be it. embrace it, be uncomfortable, go through it, like journal it, write it, voice it, talk to somebody, but like don't run away from it because it's it's it never lasts forever. You know, mm -hmm. that the shit situation, the that awful feeling in your gut it never lasts forever it, it eventually lets you go when when you when when you've done the work if you do the work but if you don't it will chase you forever so i guess best advice for someone who's going through it is just go through it really well, that is uh that's a really good message and what i don't really hear a lot i don't think but dr steffi dr steffi thank you so much for joining me it's been a pleasure so for your next fight where can people find it and where can we watch it if you already know let me know yeah so well you guys can follow me at steffi cohen for for 
everything on all platforms for all fight announcements and such. But for the fight on June 8th, uh, it's going to be streamed on the zone as well. Cool. Well, I'm sure uh, I can't watch. I can't wait to watch you progress in your career. Is powerlifting done for good? No. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I am very curious to see. I'm very curious for myself to see if I come back or when I come back, what I can do. Okay. So it's, it's, it's definitely not over. Well, very cool. And, um, you know, I know you might not keep your medals and maybe, maybe not uh, look at your accomplishments, but, uh, from, from an outsider's perspective, you've done incredible things in your career. And, uh, I think for females and people in general, for males, you know, you're somebody to look up to and to admire. So uh, I cannot wait to continue to watch what you continue to do. Um, especially your fight on June 8th. I'm sure you're going to probably beat the crap out of this person. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for coming on. I'm jealous you were in Coconut Grove. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.